All right. Hey, one last thing before we begin, because we have a special newcomer to our church today. Uh, you may have noticed or not noticed, but um, Pastor Nick took a little bit of a break the last few weeks for a parental leave, because Pastor Nick and Rachel welcomed a new baby girl into their lives about a month ago. So we want to introduce baby Olivia to you in person here. They're going to come on stage so you can all get a view. Come on up. Let's give them a hand as they do. Hey, Liam. This is Olivia David McAllister. Did you name her after me? Yeah, okay, perfect. I can't remember her middle name. What's your middle name? Selah, Olivia Selah McAllister. Welcome, Olivia. You're beautiful. So feel free to shower blessings upon the McAllister family. And, uh, but Nick got back to work this week, and it's been great to have you back. Awesome. All right, go sit down. It's my turn to preach. Here we go. Right on. All right. So we started last week this series called God of Money. We took a, a switch. We finished our Genesis series into this topical series of really the spiritual power money has in our lives. Now, last week, if you missed it, I spent the whole time saying, well, why do we talk about money in church? Why do we do this? Why do we have to take time to talk about it? And, and the reality is, Jesus talked about money a lot. Jesus talked about money more than heaven or hell or salvation or prayer. He talked about money a lot because he recognized the spiritual power it has in our lives. He even actually compared money to a kind of a God that displaces the worship of the God of the Bible and becomes an idol in our life and directing our heart toward things that aren't of God. And so for Jesus, it was an important topic to help us reorient our hearts and our minds about how to think about and what to do with our money. Money isn't evil. But Paul writes that the love of money can lead to all kinds of evil. It's the root of all kinds of evil and pierces us with many griefs and all kinds of suffering. So it's an issue we need to talk about. We need to learn how to think about it from a biblical perspective and learn the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Scripture about what to do with our money. Because there's so many warnings, but there's also a lot of wisdom. So as I also said last week, this series is not a fundraising campaign. The idea is not to get me up here for 35 minutes and yell at you and then pass the offering plate around and hopefully we can squeeze a little bit more out of you. That's not the point. The purpose of this series is not that we want something from you, but it's that we want something for you to help you get your mind wrapped around the spiritual power money can exert over your life. Find freedom from that and trust God as your provider. So as we continue this series, we're, we're learning how to direct our hearts toward God and toward the relationships that we value most. So today, I'm going to talk about one principle from the Bible about how to think about money, and then one principle from the Bible about what to do with money. Now, uh, sometimes as I prepare sermons, I'll listen to other preachers. So I want to just get kind of fresh ideas and perspectives about how to approach a topic. And, and so this series was no different. And a couple weeks ago, I was listening to Pastor Chris Price from The Way in Vancouver. Preached a great sermon on this topic. But um, he, he gave an illustration that I just, the exact same thing happens in my life. So I don't want you to think I'm stealing his story if you listen to that sermon, because literally the same thing happens all the time. But I wanted to give credit to him for reminding me of this. But if you're a parent... And if you shop at Save On Foods, maybe you've had this experience. Because Save On Foods has this deal where if you bring your kids, 
you can take them up to the bakery, and the kids can ask the baker for a free cookie, and they get a free cookie, okay? And I'm sure they do it because they want the kids to, you know, they want parents to bring their kids, and they want kids to beg and complain and whine the whole time you're shopping, so you'll buy more things that you weren't going to buy in the first place. So they give them a free cookie to kind of butter them up and get them into the building. But anyway, so we go to Save on Foods, and the first thing my kids always say, Dad, can we get a cookie? And so they're not allowed to just go by themselves. They have to actually bring a parent to the counter if they want to get the cookie. But most of the time, this is what happens. They get the cookie, they're very excited, and then I ask, can I have a bite of your cookie? What do you think the normal reaction is when I ask for, this is my cookie, Daddy? I'm not giving you a bite. And I think, like, your cookie? Did you buy that cookie? Did you bake that cookie? Did you drive yourself here to get that cookie? Did you share the gas money with me to get here to get that cookie? Your cookie? You don't want to give me a bite of the cookie you only have because I made it possible? Or how about this? Other parents, you probably do this as well, but you give your kids an allowance. Right? Our kids get an allowance. It's not big, but it's something. It's, we give our kids an allowance because we want them to learn how to use money. We want them to learn how to save, how to spend wisely, how to be generous. We teach them these principles, and we give them a little bit of money to make that happen. And then, uh, but they've developed this false belief that the chores they do around the house earn them their allowance. Like, it's like they think that if they weren't around, the house would be a disaster. Man, if we didn't have you kids around here, this place would be so messy, right? They have this sense that this is, this is mine, and I, I earned it, and, and, and I'm kind of thinking like, did you? you know? <laughs> like, you, this is pure grace and generosity of your parents to allow you to have this little bit of spending money to learn how to use it. See, we, we are very much like children in that sense. We're right from the beginning, and it's, it's our sinful nature, where we assume that when we let go of what we have, when we share, we will actually not have enough for ourselves. And it's, it's a lack of understanding of where our provision comes from. It's a lack of understanding, and it's an assumption that everything I have is mine because I've earned it, I created it, I deserve it, and so I'm not going to share it with others because they didn't earn it or create it or deserve it. I'm going to keep what I have for myself. And much like a child, we have the same lack of faith, not recognizing the location of our provision. So this is the first principle I want to talk about today. We, in, in the house of the Lord, which is the whole earth, we are the proverbial kids in my story, in the save-on foods of this planet. We're holding the cookie we didn't buy, earn, or even deserve. And so principle number one is this. Everything we have belongs to the Lord. Everything we have belongs to the Lord. God is the source of everything you have. This is a fundamental foundational principle in Scripture of what it means to be a believer of the God of the Bible. It's not controversial. This is not something that church theologians have disagreed on. Denominations don't split over this doctrine. This is just reality. All creation finds its beginning and source in the God who created it. Everything you have comes from God and belongs to God. 
Psalm 24.1 says it clearly. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And everything in the original language here means everything. You might say, well, Pastor Dave, I worked hard in school. I went to college. I paid all that money for tuition. I worked hard to get a good job. And I, I'm, I'm finally doing well. And I've, I've, I've used my money to buy my house and buy my car and do the things. that I, it, it was my hard work that put into that. Or you can say, I built my business from scratch and created it into what it is today to be able to provide for my family and provide for my employees and, and do good in the world. That was my hard work that did that. And Moses had the same question coming at him from the Israelites as they were moving into the promised land. He said in Deuteronomy 8, 17 to 18, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. This passage is taken from a time in history where the Israelites were moving into the promised land. They had existed fully supported by the provision of God in the wilderness, manna every day, quail, water from rocks. They, they saw the miracles regularly. But Moses knew as they moved into the promised land and they started to plant their own crops and raise their own herds and build their own cities, eventually they would have the sense that, well, we created our wealth. We created our provision. This is the work of our hands. And he's saying, you're going to be tempted to think that that is not a way that God provides. One way God provides is literally by making bread grow on the ground so you can get out and eat it. Another way he provides is by giving you the ability to produce wealth. Moses says you have to remember that whatever you have, no matter how it was produced, comes from the Lord, and he must get all the credit. Paul gives a similar teaching to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Everything we have is provided by God. Numbers 16.22, Moses reminds us that it's God who gives us breath. Even the fact that we're breathing right now is a gift. Salvation is the free gift of God. According to Romans 6.23, the Holy Spirit is called a gift in Acts 2.38. And in 2 Corinthians 1.22, the Holy Spirit is called a deposit, which is monetary language, a deposit guaranteeing an inheritance to come. Everything, the whole Bible is full of this language that what we have is all a provision of God. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. James' argument here is that we shouldn't, we shouldn't claim that our temptations and our sin are because of God, we often do the opposite. What we do is we say, well, God's the one tempting me and causing me to sin, but I'm the one who creates the good things in my life. James is trying to say the opposite. You're the one who's responsible for your own temptations and sin. It's your own inward evil desires that lead you to that, but God's responsible for all the good things you have in your life, and he needs to get the credit for that. He's making the argument that we should always give God credit for everything we have in our lives. We don't produce the good. We don't produce our own resources. Everything comes from God. In other words, no God, no cookie. Come on, Alan. I hear you from the back row over there. Oh, no, you're, oh, you're up front. Oof. Everything we have comes from God, but he has generously and freely given us the riches of heaven and earth for us to enjoy, for us to experience his goodness, to care for our needs, and to be generous with others. So here's the deal. If you believe 
that the fundament, this fundamental principle that everything you have belongs to God, everything you have is a gift from God, then you must also acknowledge that God maintains the right to tell us how to use what he has given us. Keeping in mind everything we talked about last week, the spiritual power money exerts over our lives, the constant temptation to worship money instead of God, the deceitfulness of wealth, how it chokes out our faith in God, the way wealth can direct the heart and pierce us with grief. Keeping in mind all of that, as Jesus teaches about how we use wealth and how we use money, he gives us a spiritual practice that helps us combat the spiritual power money has over our lives. And the spiritual practice summarized simply as this, give a bunch of it away. To combat the spiritual power and the negative influence money can have in your life, Jesus teaches, give a bunch of it away. He says, don't store treasures on earth, store treasures in heaven. He said to the rich young ruler, if you want eternal life, sell all your possessions and give to the poor. Then you won't be ruled by your money and you can be free to follow me. He said, you want to be blessed? It's more blessed to give than to receive. He said to Zacchaeus, after Zacchaeus, the little man in the tree, remember his story? He promised at the end of his conversation with Jesus, I will give half my money away to the poor. And Jesus responded by saying, today salvation has come to your house. In the parable of the rich fool, Jesus said we need to stop hoarding wealth for ourselves and instead we should be rich toward God. One of the keys... The biggest key, I think, to handling the spiritual power money has over our lives is to give a bunch of it away. It's really hard to deny that as a biblical teaching. Now, I, find, I found some great stats for you today, all right? Let's do some statistics. These are not made-up stats. 80% of stats are made up. These are not made-up stats. Um, I used to assume that almost everybody gave to charity, just because I was, I was brought up giving to the church, giving to charity, I used to assume that most, almost everybody did that. But what do you think the percentage of people in Canada who give to charity, and, and the only way this can be tracked is if, if they see people claim it on their taxes. I would assume most people who give would claim it on their taxes. So how many, what percentage of people do you think claim charitable donations on their taxes? Throw out a percentage. I didn't hear any of that. That's all right, though. <laughs> Yeah, you guys, are hitting, you guys are hitting it pretty close. In British Columbia, less than 20% of people claim charitable donations on their taxes. The Canadian city with the highest percentage of people who claim charitable giving on their taxes is Stratford, Ontario, just under 30%. That's the, that's the highest amount. Uh, and how much do you think Canadians donate to charities every year? $10? And <laughs> uh, the median donation amount, so again, median is middle. It's not the average. It's if there's a bunch of people who give $1 and a bunch of people who give a million dollars, there's the amount of people who give, and the middle number for Canada is $340 in a year. In BC, the median donation is $500 in a year. It's pretty good. Abbotsfordians, we're killing it, $930 per year. That's pretty good. Uh, Abbotsford, actually, on all the stats, is one of the most generous cities in Canada. Praise God. However, when you turn the median donation amount into an average percentage of income, in my opinion, it's a little less encouraging. Canadians give an average of 0.62% of their income to charity. 
0.62. Not 62%, obviously. 0.62. The most generous city in Canada, big Mennonite community, Steinbeck, Manitoba. Uh, 4.31% of their income goes to charity. Abbotsford Mission, that's us. We rank fourth at 1.48%. Like, fourth place and only 1.48%? At least we're beating the people from Chilliwack. They're in fifth place at 1.35%. So, we got that going. Who are the most likely people in Canada to give to charity? According to Statistics Canada, it's people who are actively religious. Their definition of actively religious, and I, didn't, I, didn't, I wasn't able to parse out which religion we're talking about, but generally in Canada, people who are actively religious, they define as people who participate in some sort of religious service at least once a week. You come to church on Sunday, you go to a Bible study, whatever it is, an average of once a week you participate means you're actively religious. You are the most likely person in Canada to give to charity. Now, people might say, okay, well, of course, you know, they give to their church or their synagogue or their temple. That's great. But here's, here's what's amazing. Actively religious people in Canada, they give a lot to their church or their synagogue or their temple. But if you actually remove that amount of charitable giving, the amount actively religious people give to non-religious charities as well is actually greater than the amount that non-actively religious people give. So take away our tithing, take away our church giving. We are actually giving more to other organizations than the total amount of charitable giving non-actively religious people are giving. So I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm just the messenger. Like, these are just facts, okay? There's something about our faith, and I'm not going to speak for other faiths, something about what the scriptures teach and the way Christians are brought up and the way we live that makes us generous people. And I praise God for that. Um, so let's talk about why should you give money to a church? Why should you give money to this church? Let me give you one really good reason that's not from the Bible, and then I'll tell you what the scriptures say about it. Why should I donate to a church? Years ago, there was a project done in Toronto, a research project called the Halo Project. And the, the data has been updated. You can see I've got the website. Uh, don't, go, don't do that one yet. Wait. You're, you're, you're take, you do. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's okay. Uh, it was a project done in Toronto, and what they did is they wanted to measure the uh, monetary impact a, a church makes on the community. So, so basically, when you look at the donations received by a church, because most churches, the vast majority of our income is donations. Here, most of it's donations. We also have rental income. Uh, which is great because we've got big building costs, but we actually this year we're on track to receive about $90,000 worth of rental income on the building, which is super helpful to offset a lot of those costs, uh, plus like rental of the parking lot during the week. Um, but most of, our, most of our income is donations. So for every dollar donated to a church, does that actually impact the community in a positive way, or is it just eaten up by ministries of the church and it only benefits insiders? So they did this research project. And they found what they called the halo effect. The halo effect. So every dollar given to a church actually radiates out 
to bring common good benefits to the city that church is in. So, so you can throw up that slide. The halo effect means that every dollar donated to a church turns into about $3.39 worth of common good benefits to a city. So you can actually go to the website. Uh, I thought I had it on there. Maybe it's on a later slide. Is it on the next slide? Haloproject.ca or something. Just Google the Halo Project and you'll find this. And you can plug in your city. So I did it for Abbotsford. And so with that $3.39 multiplier, uh, the good people at the Halo Project, they estimate that people gave about $20 million to churches in Abbotsford last year. And that multiplied into $65 million of common good benefit to the city. So basically, theoretically, if you donate $100 to APA, the city benefits $339 worth. If you donate $1,000 to APA, the city benefits $3,339 worth. Every dollar you donate to your church multiplies 3.39 times. That's a, that's a good investment, okay? Again, I'm just the messenger, okay? I'm just telling you the facts. So back to principle number one. If everything we have belongs to the Lord, and since Jesus teaches us to give money away as a way to combat negative influence, where should we start? Now, the message today is not stop giving to charities and only give to your church, because there are charities in Abbotsford that are doing things that our church at this point is unable to do. That's not the message. But the principle, I think, that the Bible teaches is that when we give, we should give to God first. We should give to God first. So the Halo Project gives a compelling social and economic reason to give money to a church, but the Bible is the source for this teaching. So let me summarize this as best I can. Uh, Starting back in the Old Testament command to tithe, Leviticus 27.30 says, A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. The word tithe means a tenth or 10%. The people were supposed to bring 10% of their produce. It was mostly an agrarian culture, so farming, animals, fruit, wheat, whatever it was, bring 10% of your produce, bring it to the temple. If they were too far away from the temple for that to be practical, they were supposed to exchange those goods in for some sort of currency like silver, collect that, and when they visited the temple at some point in the year, they'd bring all that in as their offering to the Lord. It wasn't a tax. It wasn't a fee in exchange for services. It was a holy offering to God, something that was to be set apart for God's purposes, a special kind of give, a gift we give that's connected to God's provision for the people in the land. They didn't pay their tithe. They brought their tithe. They brought what belonged to the Lord. This offering was directly connected to providing for the priests and Levites who ministered at the temple. It paid their wages. It fed their families. It provided for the temple itself as far as ministries of the temple, repairs and maintenance and upgrades, whatever the temple needed. Everything was uh, funded by the tithe. They weren't supposed to bring their leftovers Okay, they weren't supposed to bring the worst of what they had, the worst 10%. They were supposed to bring the first and the best 10%. Exodus 23.19 says, Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. 
So this was an important practice uh, steeped in the, the Old Testament law. And then as you go through the history of Israel and um, sin in the land, God removed them from the land. In the time of the exile, Babylon conquered them. And then they came back to the land, reestablished temple worship, reestablished, reestablished themselves as a nation. But this was an area that they didn't reestablish uh, well enough according to God. And so in the book of Malachi, chapter 3, if you've heard a tithing sermon before you've heard this passage, God speaks to this issue. He says, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. So the people had neglected this part of the law, and God says, as a result, you're under a curse. But if you want to be under blessing, bring the food to my house, bring the resources to my house, so ministry can continue, and I will pour out blessing on you. And, and that's, you know, the, the argument God uses is interesting, because if this, was a, a, if this was based on us giving God what was ours, he wouldn't use the illustration of robbing him. What he's saying is, you're robbing me because what you have is mine. And I've told you, you may keep 90% of it, but bring me 10% for the purpose of supporting ministry. You see, for Israel, tithe wasn't God's cut off of their paycheck or their harvest. Their whole paycheck, their whole harvest belonged to God, but God allowed them to keep 90% of it. He just asked that they return that 10%. Now, 90% can feel like a lot less than 100%, can't it? Like, it feels like a lot less. But in my opinion, keeping 90% and giving back to God his 10%, and when I, when I, when I give 10% and keep 90% in faithfulness to God, it actually, in my opinion, goes a lot farther than keeping 100% in disobedience to God. And that's what God is trying to tell the people. You feel like you need to keep it because there's not going to be enough if you give it back. But the truth is, when you give it, your provider will take care of you and bless you and make sure all of your needs are taken care of. So here's the deal. No one argues that in the Old Testament, a 10% tithe was a command of God. No one argues. It's universally agreed upon. This was part of the Old Testament law, and the people had to do it. What's controversial today is whether the tithe command remains for new covenant Christians like you and me. We're under a new covenant. It's not about the law anymore. Jesus fulfilled the law. Is it still mandatory to bring a 10% offering? Well, there's not a ton of verses in the New Testament that make a case for it, specifically in the new covenant. So it can be challenging to build a solid case for it. But there, it's not that there's no verses. There's one really interesting passage that I meditate on a lot where Jesus actually seems to affirm the tithe. But it's a strange passage because the passage isn't about Christians tithing. It's about something else. It's about something more important, about justice and mercy and righteousness. But you can see how Jesus kind of in a backdoor way teaches this practice. So Matthew 23, 23, Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees who are being extra religious and hypocritical like they were, and he comes at them with this argument. He says, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. 
You give a tenth or a tithe of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. He says, listen, you guys are so legalistic, you're counting out the grains of spice from your spice rack. You're making sure the temple gets 10% of your paprika, but he's saying you're neglecting things that are most important. Justice, mercy, righteousness. These are the most important things of the law. But what does he say? You should practice justice, mercy, and righteousness without neglecting tithing. You've elevated this while devaluing what's most important. He says you should value what's most important, but don't give up doing this because this has value as well. Additionally, it's important to note that tithing existed before the law was given. Abraham visited, uh, he had just gone to battle, uh, he had gotten a lot of plunder, and he visited uh, a city called Salem, which later in the biblical story would become Jerusalem. But right now, it was a Canaanite area. Abraham was a wanderer. The people had not been brought into the promised land long before then. Abraham comes to Salem, and he meets the king of Salem, who was also a priest of God. And it's super mysterious how this guy knew the true God. But here we go. His name was Melchizedek. Interesting kind of uh, background character that has a lot of importance as you read through the scriptures. So he meets Melchizedek. Melchizedek comes out to Abraham and his family and his soldiers, and he gives them a big feast. And we're told he blesses Abraham. So Abraham, in response to this feast and this blessing, what does he do? Not because there's a law, not because God told him to, but out of joyful response to the generosity of the king of Salem, Abraham gave a tenth of everything he had. Abraham was an incredibly wealthy man. So Melchizedek remains a bit of a mystery through the Old Testament until the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is also a royal priest in the same order as Melchizedek, the king of Salem. So long story short, without getting into the weeds, Abraham didn't tithe to the law, he tithed to Jesus. And not because he was required to, but out of a joyful response to the generosity of this royal priest who came and blessed him and fed him and was near him, and and Abraham responded with gladness. So this principle of setting aside a portion is all through Scripture. It's all through the Bible. It's not just tied to the law. So in addition to Jesus' words and Abraham and the principles of setting aside a portion, there are other principles that cross the boundary from Old Testament to New. We still have houses of worship that need financing, like the temple did. We have professional ministers of the gospel that need financial support, like the priests and Levites. In other words, we used to give a tithe to finance the ministry of the temple, but now we give our tithes to finance the ministry of the local church. Now, I, for one, believe that the practice of tithing 10% to a local church, it may not be a command anymore, but it's a great practice. It's a great goal. It's a great benchmark for a follower of Jesus. And I will tell you that I believed that long before I became a pastor and got a paycheck that came out of the tithes of the people. And I'm not saying that to gain points, but just to tell you that this is something that I believed and taught long before I knew that this was my calling. I was giving a tithe when I was 11 years old with a paper route. I was giving a tithe when I was a dishwasher at the pantry. I was giving a tithe during college, paying tuition and going into debt. I was giving a tithe while I worked at London Drugs here in Mission. 
Okay, I was giving a tithe, all, and today my wife and I faithfully tithe to APA, not because we think we have to, but because we joyfully respond to the work of God, and we believe it's important to continue to support his ministry in the local church. <clears throat> but you may be unconvinced. You may be unconvinced. You say, this is, you know, this is still an Old Testament thing, Pastor Dave. We're, we're not under the law anymore. We're under grace. And I get all those arguments. But let me ask you, why under grace would we be less generous than we were under the law? Why under the generosity of God who gave everything to us, his one and only son, the treasure of heaven, why under that kind of generosity would we decide to be less generous than we were when we were under the oppressiveness of the law? And that's the argument Paul makes when he's fundraising in the church in Corinth. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Under the grace of Jesus, he impoverished himself. He left his throne in heaven, gave everything, spilled his blood, washed our feet like a slave, so that we could have the riches of heaven and the abundant grace of the inheritance God gives us. Why would we be less generous under that than under the law? Especially when there are so many promises in the scripture about how God blesses those who are generous. Proverbs 3, 9 to 10 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. So here's my invitation. This is not obligation. This is invitation. I want to invite you to take up the same invitation Malachi gave us. Why don't you test God in this? Why don't you try it and see if he blesses you? And if today you're at 0% and going from 0 to 10% sounds like a really big jump, then you are under grace. And why don't you start at 2 or 3% and, and work your way up? Or if you're at 10% and that's been easy for a long time and you've kind of gotten used to that, why not go to 11 or 15% and test God and see what kind of blessing he might pour out in your life? For me, I think I can't afford not to. Because here's the thing. When I talk to someone who is a faithful tither, here's how they respond to me. I'm blessed. And when I talk to someone who doesn't tithe, here's how they, here's how they talk about it. I can't afford to tithe. Isn't that interesting? The tithers say, I'm blessed. The non-tithers say, I can't afford to do it. Why don't you test God and see if he blesses you? I can't afford not to in my own life. 90% I keep in faithfulness goes way farther than 100% I keep in disobedience to God. I think something we need to realize is that the way God finances his kingdom on earth is through faithful people. God doesn't just like pour money into the church's bank account. You know that, right? It doesn't just show up. The way God finances his church is through faithful people who give generously. And I think when God finds someone who's extra generous, he gives extra provision because he can trust that person to give. Like, like if my eight-year-old was able to do the grocery shopping every week and fill up the car with gas and pay the hydro bill, I would give him a lot more than $4 per week. Like, man, you're able to do all that? You can take care of that? Here you go. I will pump resources through his hands 
if he's able to finance the work of our house. And he will pump resources into the hands of those who are faithful to generously supply for his kingdom work in the world. Last quote. It's a great quote. Anne Frank, you know her story. She said, no one ever became poor by giving. No one ever became poor by giving. We often think that when we give, we won't have enough for ourselves. But I actually think that's a lie from Satan that we're believing. It's the same lie he told Eve in the garden. If you don't eat from that tree, you, you won't have what you need. You need to take all of it. Whereas God says, no, leave a portion for me. No one ever became poor by giving. Listen, in the end, in the end, the source of APA's resources is not people. That's why this series is not a fundraising campaign. The source of APA's funding, its resources, its provisions is not people, it's God. And I have absolute faith that God will continue to provide for us. However, you and I have the opportunity to participate in that provision, to be a part of that provision, and in the process receive the blessing of God in what it means to be a part of his provision. So while I have a high responsibility as as the lead pastor and chief steward of the church's resources, I remind myself that God is in control and ultimately he is our provider because when we trust in him, there will always be enough because he loves us. He loves us. So we're going to transition into a time of communion. I'm going to ask the band to come back up and lead us in that time. Think about the symbolism of communion, celebrating the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. It's a remembrance of the generosity of God displayed through the sacrifice of Jesus. The treasure of heaven being given, the first fruits of what God has, his first and his best laid down as a sacrifice in exchange so that we could be made rich in Christ. And we're told God so loved the world that he gave. You see, Jesus, like I said, according to the author of Hebrews, is presented as a royal priest in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is this mysterious guy who came out and gave a feast for Abraham and blessed him. And as a joyful response, Abraham gave a tithe. Jesus comes to us. He's the true king of Salem, the true king of Jerusalem. And he provides us a feast. But the feast is not steak and lobster or Caesar salad and corn on the cob. His feast is his own body and blood broken on a cross. Through this feast and what it represents, we receive the blessing of God. We receive eternal life. What better way to respond to that generosity than with joyful generosity toward the very work that will help more people learn and grow in the same faith that has transformed your life. So as we celebrate communion, I want you to meditate on the generosity God has shown to you. And because the scriptures also teach that no one should give under compulsion, we're not putting the pressure on and we're not going to follow up and make sure that all of you are doing what you should be doing. We're going to leave that to be a conversation between you and God. You've received the invitation. Now I want you to listen to the voice of the Lord. Let me pray, and when I finish praying, come, 
grab the juice and the cracker, bring it back to your seat, spend this time in worship and meditation, and then I'll come back up and lead you through taking these elements. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your incredible generosity toward us. Lord, you saw our spiritual and physical poverty, and instead of leaving us to drown in it, you poured out the treasures of heaven in Jesus Christ. He who was rich became poor so that we might become rich in him. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. You gave it all. And today we respond with joyful generosity back to you. I pray, Lord God, that no one would leave here under a sense of guilt or shame or compulsion. But Lord, we would be able to hear your voice, trust in you, and respond according to your call. We love you and thank you and pray you and bless the elements of communion today as we take them together. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you come, grab your elements. There's some in the balcony as well. Please grab those and head back to your seat.